Welcome, everyone. Great to have you here tonight. Welcome to King of Kings. Thank you for the woo. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, so good to be able to come together into the house of the Lord, isn't it? And to worship the Lord. Thank you, Thais, Daniela. Thank you, worship team. Let's give them a big hand. That was awesome to be able to worship the Lord together. <clears throat> We want to also welcome our King of Kings family. Welcome back. It's good to see some of your faces. And uh, welcome to the house, the presence of the Lord. And uh, then we want to say a welcome, a warm welcome to our friends who are joining us from around the world. They came all the way to Jerusalem to worship with us tonight. And we are honored that you guys are here with us. Uh, just as a way of reminder, we want to remind you that our senior leader, Pastor Chad, is traveling on our behalf. He's traveling in the United States. He's just finished probably two or three weeks back-to-back -back meetings. He's on the west coast of the United States, and now he's getting ready to step into two or three more weeks back-to-back -back meetings. He's representing us, representing King of Kings, and representing Israel, what the Lord is doing here. And so we want to keep him in prayer. He's got a gruel schedule in front of, grueling schedule in front of him as he's uh, stepping into all of these meetings. And then we want to also lift them as a family up because as he comes to the end of their meetings, he is going to actually be taking a couple weeks of vacation with his family. So let's keep him and Rebecca and the kids in our prayers as they are traveling. They'll be back with us uh, at the beginning of September and we're looking forward to hearing good reports about their trip. And then men, we started our men's Bible study this last Monday night. <clears throat> we had a great time. All the wooers are the guys that were there. <laughs> we actually had a wonderful time as we dived into First Peter together. It's a super laid-back meeting, and uh, we want to invite you. If you're a man, if you have that male chromosome, you are invited to join us. Come on. This next week, we're going to meet a week from tomorrow night again on July 24th. We are meeting in Liberty Bell Park, and uh, there are those amazing men of God. Come on. Come on. We are meeting in Liberty Bell Park at 6.30. It's super casual, no formality, and we are studying God's Word together. And we're fellowshipping with other men. And there's something about uh, being with other men that's a key, we said. There's a key that's shaped in the size of fellowship with other men. And when we come together with other men, something happens in our lives and in our hearts and you need to be there. So it's not a closed group. This isn't the only set of guys that are gonna come. You're welcome to join us. It's exactly an hour and a half. We stop right at eight o'clock and to let you go. So bring your Bible, something to sit on, and let's continue to grow together, men. So let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Nobody needs to answer out loud. I want you to think about what that moment looked like in your life when you realized that God didn't color inside of the lines, when you realized God was coloring outside of the lines of what you had expected or anticipated and everything that you knew about him sort of became obsolete as he started doing things that you didn't anticipate, you didn't expect. I know for me, I remember that moment. It was a vivid memory still to today. I was serving with the international Christian Embassy here in Jerusalem. And uh, we had been a uh, busy season getting ready for the Feast of Tabernacles. As you know, 
the ICEJ holds a, a big feast celebration every year. And uh, we had spent lots and, t- lots, of, lots and lots of time, probably four or five weeks getting ready for this Feast of Tabernacles. Really, it was four or five months, but it was really intense. Like the last four or five weeks, super busy. And um, this moment happened right in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was late one night, probably midnight, one o'clock in the morning. I was getting in my car after a long day of talking to people and busyness and celebrating the feast and uh, serving in all different kinds of ways. I get in my car and it's the first time in probably five or six weeks that I had a moment by myself where I could just have that solitude and, and quiet. And as I'm driving in the car out of Jerusalem on my way home, I begin to process some of the things that had been gathering up in my heart. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I'd been listening to some different things, things I was reading in God's word, things that I'd heard and read in other places and teachings, podcasts, and it was kind of all accumulating there in my heart. And I could tell that God was trying to say something to me, but I wasn't able to actually put all those pieces together. I was so busy getting ready for this wonderful celebration, and, and now for the first time I have quiet, and I'm starting to process these things, and I'm sifting through these things that God had been speaking into my heart. And I remember I couldn't tell what they were saying, and then suddenly it was like um, all the pieces came together in one moment. And I remember even where I was at on the road when it happened. And they came into focus, and it was as if I could hear and see God's words clearly speaking into my heart. And he said this, I'm going to let the bottom of your life drop out from under you but I'm going to be with you and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to provide everything for you. Well, I really didn't know what to do with that. (laughs) I didn't tell anybody because I wasn't 100% sure that it was really the Lord, but I began to to pray into this word from the Lord. and, uh, And then in a few weeks, God moved again outside of the, the boundaries of my lines. And again, he gave me a date of when the bottom was going to fall out. And now I really didn't tell anybody because I was convinced my theology at that time, God doesn't give people dates. Only crazy people get dates. So I wasn't going to tell anybody. And I certainly didn't tell my wife. I wasn't going to tell her. And wouldn't you know it, on the day that God said that the bottom was going to drop out, the bottom began to drop out. Thankfully, it didn't happen all at once. It took a a long two or three year process where God graciously and and tenderly walked uh, Melissa and I through probably the most amazing journey of our lives. And everything in a person's life that we hold on to for identity and uh, purpose and goals and calling and meaning, uh, God touched family and family relationships, health, ministry, reputation, calling, anything that could be touched, God gingerly and delicately began to touch all of these parts. And and in a way, he stripped us down to nothing. And there we stood back at square one, it felt like, with God. Today, I can look back at that moment. I can look back at those years and I see 
God's gentle process of deconstruction in my life, remodeling our perspectives, our understanding of him, remodeling and giving us a bigger picture of who we are and his calling in our lives and giving us a broader, a deeper love for him, for his body, for the land of Israel, for ourselves. And in the middle of all of that, somehow, God gave us a deeper humility a brokenness, if you will, a stronger faith. Until that experience, I I think I always understood God and he stayed within the lines of my expectations and my rules and how I thought he should be and the way I thought that he should look and work and act. But God, in his faithfulness and, and true to his character, doesn't allow us to stay where we're at. In love and with great grace, he initiates this model of remodeling and this process of remodeling in our lives as he sweeps away those stagnant ideas and theologies and wrong ideals that we build up and rather replacing them with truth and with character and stronger faith and deeper relationship and greater meaning to everything that we're doing. If you've been with us over the past several weeks, we've been looking at a series that we're calling Deconstructing God. Not destructing God, deconstructing God, God's true character. And we've been looking at this God-initiated process that takes place in our lives as followers of God, as people of God. And, And to be clear, we're not deconstructing God. That's not our goal. We're rather talking about this wonderful and amazing process, the way that God moves in our lives. We're putting a label on stuff that we already know, and we're explaining how God assists us. He allows us to grow and to develop as he remodels us, as he gives us, in technical terms, the upgrade that we need. He gives us these needed updates as we yield our lives to him, as we walk with him. To help us do this, and and as we walk through this process, we've been examining different biblical characters. and We've been looking at the lives of men and women of God as they walked with God and looking at their stories and the way that God exposes who he is and how he works in our lives through the lives of these characters. In our first week, we looked at Abraham, the father of our faith, as he lays his son Isaac out to be sacrificed Last week, Pastor Eli did an outstanding job describing to us the man Moses, the meekest man alive, and describing how he went from Egypt and deconstructed to become a shepherd and then deconstructed again to be the deliverer of God's people out of Egypt. And Tonight, we're going to look at a man whose story of deconstruction is probably one of the most profound, most spectacular of any of all the biblical characters that we're going to look at. In fact, I would say in some ways that Job really is the poster child for this process of deconstruction. We won't really have time tonight to present all of Job's story, but rather we're trusting that you know the story, you've read it, or even if you haven't read it, you've heard about it and you know this person, Job. But in summary, this is what we can say about Job. Job was a a man of character, godly character. The book of Job begins by telling us that Job was blameless. He was upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. The Bible 
highlighting for us first his character. This is what God wants us to see first. And then he goes on to describe Job as the greatest man of all of the peoples of the East. See, Job was a man of stature. He was a man of great wealth. He was well known, not just in the East, probably in the rest of the world. Job was one of those people like maybe uh, today we would say Elon Musk. We don't know Elon Musk. At least most of us in here don't know him, I'm assuming. And yet we know about him, and the news is always reporting about him. And so we know things that are going on with Elon Musk. Job was that kind of man. He was a large property owner. He had animals and livestock and servant and possessions, and there was nobody else like him in the whole earth. But in spite of Job's character and in spite of his wealth, in spite of his stature, the book takes us through, Job's story takes us through Job's life getting turned upside down as God initiates a confrontation with Satan. God allowing the enemy to strike at all of Job's property, his possessions, and everything that he has. Everything is wiped away in one moment, in one day. Everything disappears and is removed from his life. Everything that's near to him and dear to him The greatest loss was his 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. In a moment, all 10 of them are destroyed, killed, as the house that they're in collapses on them. That alone would put all of us on our faces. But he loses everything else, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. I can't even imagine seeing 3,000 camels, but Job had all 3,000 of them. 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, everything destroyed, stolen, burned up, and all of his servants killed except for four. Everything that he owned, everything that he was responsible for, everything that he cared about is destroyed in a moment. Killed, murdered, stolen. Only thing that's left is him, his wife, and four servants. But that's not where the story ends. If you know the story, next, God allows Satan to strike Job's physical body. So Satan covers Job's body with painful sores from the head of his, crown of his head to the sole of his feet. And he's in pain. And he's lost everything. And in just a short period of time, We watch this man of great renown, of great wealth, of superfluous uh, possessions. He loses everything. And he goes from being at the top of the top to being at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. He's in a trash pile. And the urchins that live in the trash pile are calling him names, spitting on him. He becomes a nothing and he loses everything. The rest of the story of the book of Job, the rest of the the chapters, there's 40 more chapters. All of this happens in two chapters. The rest of the book, the 40 chapters that follow, is an amazing dialogue that takes place between Job and Job's friends. At first, Job's friends come to console him in his brokenness and in his loss and in his pain. 
But as Job then begins to question what's going on in his life and questioning God and proclaiming his innocence, crying out for meaning and for answers and for justification and, and he wants reasons, his friends respond with a litany of accusations against him because everyone knows you don't talk about God that way. You don't talk to God that way. And these kinds of things, Job, let's just be honest, these kinds of things, they don't happen in the lives of men and women who are following God. They just don't happen in those kinds of people's lives. Scholars believe that Job lived well before the patriarchs, before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The story takes place sometime after the flood and before Abraham's calling by God to be the children of Israel. His story would have been known. His story would have surrounded all of the peoples, especially of the East, and they would have known about Job, and they would have known this story. It was circulated by camel train, by word of mouth, and so the patriarchs would have known Job's story. Abraham would have known Job's story. Some of the things that show us that Job's story takes place before the patriarchs, Job's lifespan was longer than any of the other patriarchs. 220 years compared to Abraham's 175. But most important, and, and we see this as we read through the text of Job, it never mentions anything about the people of Israel, never mentions God's people, the, the Jewish people. It never talks about the miracles that took place at the Exodus or the plagues or the decimation of the Egyptian army. Never talks about the Canaanite wars. And certainly those things would have come up in that description that goes back and forth between Job and his friends. So scholars believe that because of these things and, and many more that Job's life and his story were recorded long before Moses began writing other books of the Bible. Meaning that of all the books of the Bible, Job is the oldest book of the Bible and probably written before any other book of the Bible. It was recorded and set to documentation, written out in full. This is significant for us as, it, as we see God highlighting for us and for all of mankind putting first so that we can all see and hear that before any other records are set into place, this story, the story of Job, this is the story that God wants told first. He wants us to see it and hear it first because it sets so many standards for our lives. All throughout its text, chronicling Job's story, we're introduced to amazing theological ideas and truths, not just in words, but how they take place, how they transpire. We get to see what God sees in a way. We get to see how God sees us. We get to see how God works, how he moves, how he works in the lives of his chosen ones. We get to peek behind the curtain at the spiritual realm and see what happens up in heaven and, and how that works. God allows us to see spiritual warfare and what that's like in the battlefield that you and I are on and the, that we take part in. In many ways, the book of Job becomes for us then a, a template, a standard for all of mankind, 
that we can look at and follow those examples that God has laid out there. And for us tonight, what we would say is that the book of Job allows us to see firsthand the anatomy of a deconstruction. This is what deconstruction looks like. Job is the poster child. And this is how it works. This is what it looks like. This is how God moves in our lives and, and graciously remodels us and grows us. Tonight we're going to look at some of those, uh, those uh, parts. But more importantly, what we also see in the book of Job is how to walk through those seasons of deconstruction. You know, it's interesting. Uh, this, just this week... Melissa and I, my wife and I, were having a coffee date and we were visiting and, and she was highlighting for me, this person just gave this report and this person just gave this report and this person just gave this report. And, and then she says to me, everybody is going through a hard time right now. Probably not everyone, but most of us know what I'm talking about, this season of deconstruction. And, and Job gives us a way to walk through these seasons when they become a part of our lives. But equally important, Job also highlights for us how to walk with others who are walking through a season of deconstruction in their lives. So we get to see what deconstruction looks like. We get to see in Job how we're supposed to walk through it ourselves. And then, very important, how do we walk with others who are walking through a season of deconstruction? So. When you step into a season of deconstruction, or if you're there now, what should you expect? What should you be looking for? What can you anticipate? Based on the book of Job, this is what we see. And, and it's number one, God initiates the process. God is the one that's in control. That should bring you some relief. As we watch this story unfold with Job, Nobody else is in control. It wasn't Job's idea for sure. It wasn't Satan's idea, though Satan participated. He was only the lackey that carried out the plan. It wasn't Job's friends who had the idea. It wasn't his wife. It wasn't the community. It was God. God initiates the process of deconstruction in our lives. God initiates the process of deconstruction in your life. Let's make it personal. He's the one that initiates it. It's not the enemy. And as we see, it wasn't Job. God initiates this process by boasting to Satan about his servant, Job. And I love these words. He says to Satan, hey, hey, buddy, have you considered my servant, Job? Oh, there is no one on the earth like him. Man, I get goosebumps just reading that. There is no one on the earth like him. He is blameless. He is upright. He is a man who fears me. He shuns evil. Have you noticed Job? A little bit later, after Satan has already destroyed everything and stolen everything from Job, God says it again. Hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's no one like him on the earth. He's blameless. He's upright. He's a man who fears me. He shuns evil. And God says, 
he still maintains his integrity. Though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. God is proud of us, proud of his children. Pastor Ilya said this last week, and we need to grab a hold of this. God is proud of us. He's proud of his children. And we see this in the book of Job. He isn't embarrassed by our lives. He's not embarrassed by the words that we say or our actions. In fact, what we see in Job is that he takes great delight in you. He didn't just say that about Job. I, I think he says that about each and every one of us. Hey, have you noticed my servant, James? Have you noticed my servant, Joanna? Check her out. But what God also wants us to see, and it, and it isn't direct, but it's indirect, and God wants us to see that Job's calamity wasn't a result of Job's sin. Job's fear, Job's unbelief, Job's pride. Scholars will try to pin these things on Job, but God's very clear. He says, you, you, you incited me against him without any reason. There was no reason. So Job's calamity isn't because of anything that he's done wrong. He's not being punished. What took place in Job's life wasn't because of anything that Job had did wrong. Rather, it was because of everything he did right. The book of Job shows us how God uses painful circumstances in the lives of his chosen one. We don't want to hear that. But God shows this, this in the book of Job, how he uses those painful circumstances in your life. In the lives of his chosen one, those who have qualified for spiritual advancement because of their obedience, because of their innocence, because of their desire to honor God, their desire to live a separated, holy, righteous life. God initiates those moments of remodeling and deconstruction that take place in our lives. Job wasn't in need of correction. He hadn't done anything wrong. Rather, God knew that he could trust Job. And he knew that Job's life was going to set an example for the rest of time. He knew that Job was blameless. Job was devoted to him. Listen to Job's word as he's in the middle of the trash pile, scraping his sores, being spit on by the urchins in the trash pile. Though he slay me, though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. Job was setting an example for all time. Imagine Abraham taking his one and only son up Mount Moriah to lay him on the altar, and he's thinking about Job. I know God's faithful. I don't understand what's happening here, but I know God loves me. Imagine Joseph in the prison in Egypt being sold into slavery by his own family, thinking about Job. I know God is faithful. I know if I, am, if I honor God, God is going to honor me. King David running for his life before he's king, 
rehearsing Job's story, I know that God is with me. I can't see it. I can't feel it. But I know he's with me if I keep following that example. Job's life message then is a pattern for us, a a model, a, a measurement for the disciplines of God in our lives. It gives us a, a grid, a measuring grid, so that we can see as things take place in our lives where we're at and it allows us to cooperate with God's process in our lives. Without this grid, without this understanding that we get from the book of Job and, and from Job's story, we're likely to get upset with God, to get upset with the process, to uh, abort the process, to dive out, This can't be God. This doesn't make sense. I didn't do anything wrong. This shouldn't be happening in my life. I can say that with so much veracity because I've said that. (laughs) And, And a lot of us in this room have as well. What's going on? How can this be happening to me? What did I do wrong? Where's the sin, God? Where's the sin? I can't see anything. Did I not trust you enough? Did I say the wrong things? Did I take the wrong turn? Without this grid of understanding in in Job, we're tempted to dive out of the process. And this is where most of us actually get stuck. This leads us to the second truth about the deconstruction process that we need to understand that deconstruction is messy. Uh, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I worked for a uh, remodeling contract company that we would go in and remodel storefronts and office spaces. And, and I learned this profound reality that things had to get really, really, really messy before they ever really looked nice, before we could make them better and nice. We went in and we ripped out walls and ceilings and carpet and and exposed everything. There was wires hanging out of the ceiling and wires hanging out of the wall and the floor was a mess. And this was what remodeling looked like. Everything exposed. King David describes this best. Psalm 34, and we know these words so, so well, but we don't want to apply them so often. Many, he says, many, many is like this word that means more than one. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. One, two, three, four, five, two hundred, five hundred. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We like that idea. I'm a righteous one. I'm God's righteous son, God's righteous daughter. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. We need to embrace that and we need to grab a hold of that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But, David says, the Lord delivers them out of all of them. All 500, all 700, all 1,200. God delivers them out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is our first key point tonight. The season, seasons of deconstruction usually include the uncomfortable, the awkward, the unsettled, and even the painful. But God uses each of these things in this process for our spiritual growth and development and advancement. This is an important truth. 
for God's people to once again grab a hold of and to capture about our walks of faith with our sovereign, supernatural God, that it is possible to do everything right and still experience great distress and upheaval in our lives. Peter reminds us of this. Again, we don't like these verses, but listen to this. Peter says so powerfully, dear friends, do not be surprised. Why are you surprised? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Don't be surprised. You signed up for this. You said yes to the process. As though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. Don't be surprised. This is part of the process. If you want to be righteous, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Peter goes on to say, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of the Messiah so that you may be overjoyed when, he, when his glory is revealed. Bob Sorg in his book, Pain, Perplexity, and Promotion, say that really fast three times. Pain, Perplexity, and Promotion says this. If you've been walking blamelessly and faithfully before God in something incredibly mystifying and even traumatic happens to you, which seems to have no reasonable cause, then heighten your spiritual awareness. God might be in the process of bringing you into spiritual promotion. So, what do we do when we find ourselves in the middle of a season of the deconstruction process? We go on Facebook and we tell the whole world, my life is falling apart. What do we do when we step into that middle of deconstruction process? Job gives us the example. Job is the example. We don't jump online. We don't tell our closest 5,000 friends. Job gives us in his actions and in his theology, in his words, the example that we're supposed to follow. When everything in Job's life is destroyed, killed, burned up, he's sitting in a pile of trash with swords all over his body. Job says in, in chapter one, he got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground, and he worshiped. says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's our example. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's our example. And it isn't just Job that says it going to read a couple of scriptures in a moment. Later, after he's been smitten with sores all over his body, his wife comes to him and says, curse God and die. Quit playing around with this spirituality stuff. And he says to her, you're, you're talking like a foolish woman. Listen to this theology. Shall we accept good from God? 
and not trouble? That theology right there is not popular. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Equal, equal, 50-50, good and bad from God in our lives. That's not popular theology. And this is what Job shows us. And this is our second key point tonight. This is a powerful spiritual reality about every season of our lives, but especially in those seasons of deconstruction. This is our key point. God is worshiped for who he is, not for what he can do for us, and certainly not for what he gives or doesn't give to us. He's our God. He's always worthy of our praise. We were singing that tonight, day and night, night and day. Let incense arise in seasons of darkness. Let incense arise in seasons of bountifulness in our lives. Let's Let incense arise in every season. David says it this way, as he's fleeing for his life, running from King Abimelech, he says, I will extol the Lord at all times, good and bad times. His praise will always be on my lips. I I will glory in the Lord. Then he says this, let the afflicted, Let those that are going through deconstruction, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Peter, we just read this. Peter says, don't be surprised, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of the Messiah. My son said to, we had our family devotion yesterday, and my son says, people don't do that. Like, we don't rejoice when bad things happen. People don't do that. When we were attacked at the the walls, at the front gate here with all the religious that came to attack us, we weren't going, yay, we're suffering for the Messiah. (laughs) Worship is the key in our season of deconstruction. God invites us to come to him in the day of trouble, to worship him, to pray to him. He invites us to come to him. I was scanning Facebook a a couple weeks ago and a a couple going through a tough time in their marriage. And if you're married, you go through tough times. He just left me to the whole world. The next day, he just came back, we're doing better (laughs) to the whole world. God says, don't do that. In the day of trouble, come to me. Let your requests be made known to me. I'm your helper. I'm the one that's initiating this process in your lives. Come to me. Call out on me in the day of trouble and worship me in those moments. Finally, we see Job's story shows us what deconstruction looks like, shows us how to walk through it, but it also shows us how to walk with others in their moments of deconstruction that takes place in their lives, in their seasons of upside-downness. 
Eugene Peterson in his introduction to the book of Job in the message version says this, sufferers attract fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. <laughs> Don't you love it? Sufferers attract fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. Job's friends come rushing in and on one level they're there to help. But they didn't come to help. They didn't come to listen. They didn't come to mourn with Job. They wanted to diagnose the problem. What caused this? Why is this happening? And why is this happening to Job? And then tell Job exactly what he was doing wrong so that he could fix it and get back on with his life, if he could fix it. Suddenly, his friends were now the experts, and they knew the situation inside and out. They knew who God was and how God works and what he needed and what he didn't need to do. And they were there to help. You know, sometimes this is a reality in all of our lives. Sometimes we think we know who God is. And God says, none of you know who I am. None of you know what I'm like unless I show you. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know what I'm doing unless I show you. My ways are not your ways, and my ways are past finding out unless I show you. Job's friends and, and, and everything that they said was technically true, technically correct. They, they were able to recite book, chapter and verse who God was and how God works and what was up in, in Job's life. But this was the problem. It was all technical. It wasn't anything relational about God. It was all technical. It was by the book. And some of us need to hear this tonight. God does not work by the book. This is our third key point tonight. God's dealings in our lives are as private and as unique to each one of us as is our relationship to him, God is not a one-size-fits-all God, period. What he does in my life, even if the situation is exactly the same, let's say I've just lost my job, you've just lost your job, or you lost your job 10 years ago, it's not the same situation. God's doing in my life something so personal, so unique, so outside of what he did in your life that you can't s speak into this situation. That doesn't mean you don't have wisdom. It doesn't mean you don't have some good things that you can add to it. So how do we come alongside a, a friend or a spouse, a coworker, a child, someone who's walking through those difficult seasons? How do we do that? As much as we want to step in and help them and fix things and tell them how to get going again. We want to be careful that we're not like Job's friends. Please hear me. We want to be careful that we're not like Job's friends. We don't want to rush in with presumption. We know everything that there is to know about the situation. No matter how wise you are, no matter how insightful we are, we might really have the right motivation in our hearts. We really don't know what God's doing. We don't really understand what's happening on the inside. And, and more than that, and from experience, all of us can raise our hands and say, yep, 
More than that, our friends probably don't want our advice. Rather, God's word shows us this is how we're supposed to walk with those who are going through a process of deconstruction. We're supposed to enter into the moment with them, enter into the suffering with them. Romans tells us in chapter 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Doesn't say give advice to those who mourn. It doesn't say tell them how to get back on the road to those who mourn. It says mourn with those who mourn. Galatians 6 tells us carry each other's burden burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of the Messiah. We want to fix it. We don't want to carry their burden. Take on yourselves one another's troubles. Whoop, wait, I don't want to take on that trouble. I just want to tell them how to fix it. Second Corinthians says this. Paul reminds us, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord, Messiah, Yeshua, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. God comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves received from God. God comforts us in our troubles. He fills us with hope. He comforts us. He mourns with us. He walks alongside of us so that we can walk alongside those that are going through a season of deconstruction and comfort them with the same comfort that God gave to us. It's a cycle. God sets it in motion. He doesn't tell us to go help them with the latest uh, advice that we just saw on Google. He tells us to comfort them with the comfort that he just gave to us to enter into their suffering. See, suffering and, and deconstruction is a mystery. None of us really understand what's going on. As much as we think we do, as much as we want to, we don't really know what's going on. And God invites us to join them in their weeping, to mourn with them in their mourning, to protest with them in their protesting, to pray with them in their praying, to worship with them in their worship. Not to pity them, not try to fix them, but to pray with them. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. God has given us the book of Job. He's given us this example. It's a seminal example that for all time, mankind can look at this process in action in the life of this man, Job. Job is the pioneer of deconstruction, and he showed us how to walk through it. And he shows us how to honor God, how to worship God in the midst of our deconstruction moments. And then the book of Job also shows us how we walk with others as they're going through their moments of deconstruction. This deconstruction zone is, is an amazing confluence. Think about what's going on here. It's this confluence of God's purposes, the enemy's incitement and his accusations, and people's opinions all coming to play at one spot in our lives. And God says, in the midst of that, 
cry out to me in the day of trouble. Worship me in your dark seasons. God uses all of these things to season our souls, to strengthen our faith, to deepen our intimacy with him, to give us a broader, bigger picture of who he's called us to be. James says in chapter one, anyone who meets a testing challenge head on and manages to stick it out is mighty fortunate. This is the message version. For such persons loyally in love with God, the reward is life and more life. David says in Psalm 71, your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You have, you who have done great things, who is like you? God, who is like you? Though you have made me see troubles, though you've taken me through this season of deconstruction, you've made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. David could say that because he knew Job's story. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy and I will sing praise to you in whom uh, I, in whom you have delivered. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long. Would you stand to your feet with me? We want to know God deeper. We want to be called righteous. We just don't like these awkward seasons of deconstruction that take place in our lives. I'm assuming, and I'm probably right, at least half of the people in this room are walking through that kind of a season. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. We should actually realize God's called us to a, a place of promotion as we're going through this deconstruction process. I wanna invite you to come forward. We're gonna invite our prayer team to come down here. We just wanna pray with you and alongside you in this moment. If you have other prayer requests, we wanna invite you to come and have prayer for those as well. But our team is gonna be here. We're gonna worship the Lord. Uh, James will come up and close us and we will go out with some worship tonight. Amen.